here at ACO Radio, American Communications Online, or any affiliated stations or websites are not responsible for what guests, hosts, or call-ins may say. All programming is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. Hello world, this is TJ Morris and you're listening to ET Radio. Welcome aboard all you ground troops spinning around smartly out there on the planet. We've got an exciting show for you today and I'm hoping we can hear John Barber. Let me tell you a little bit about him and then I'm going to introduce my co-host. A Canadian high school dropout at 15 was deported at 17. John Barber recognized as the godfather of reality TV as the creator-producer co-host and writer of the trend-setting hit Real People. He won the first of his five Emmys at the original host of AMLA in 1970 when he interviewed controversial anti-war guests like Muhammad Ali, Cesar Chavez, and Jane Fonda. He was the first in America on film reviews on the news, winning three more consecutive Emmys at KNBC's Critic at Large in 10 years as Los Angeles Magazine's most widely read and quoted controversial critic. Prior to that, he was a successful topical stand-up comedian appearing on the Dean Martin Show. Boy, who hadn't watched that? The Tonight Show. Oh, wow. These are some amazing shows. Las Vegas opening. He helping for Robert Goulet and... But- Oh, my God, one of my favorite, Bobby Darren's. Oh, my gosh. But uh looks like comedian activist Dick Gregory did the liner notes for his first album. It's tough to be white. And playwright Neil Simon did them for his second album, I Met a Man I Don't Like. Now, in 1992, he wrote and directed the award-winning The Garrison Tapes, which director Oliver Stone has heralded in as the perfect companion piece to his movie called JFK. 25 years later, in 2017, he wrote directed part two called The American Media and the Second Assassin of President John F. Kennedy, which leading researchers applauded as the definitive film on JFK and the rise of fake news which plagues America to this day. So John said, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. He's just a storyteller. So in quotes, he said, I am not a conspiracy theorist, just a storyteller. So he changed the face of American television as a creator, producer, principal writer, and co-host of Real People, television's first reality show. He's a five-time award winner. Maybe I should have started off with that. (laughs) And a story actor and performer, and uh, a joke and script writer. He's an entertainment professional across many genres, and I can't wait to get him on here. But Jan, uh, Janet Lesson helped me a lot. So let me. She's. I'm in Florida, folks, in Gulf Breeze, and Janet is in Hawaii. And right now, I believe our guest is on hold. But Janet, Kara Lesson, can you hear me? Janet. Now? <laughs> yes, Janet. I can hear you. Can you? <laughs> Can you hear me, Janet? <laughs> yeah, I can't. Yeah, and I can't hear uh, John, so I don't know what that's about. But go ahead, and we'll try again. I'm gonna push it off, and hopefully push it back on in a minute. So okay, we'll try it out. Anyway, I'm calling so in from Hawaii. I'm Janet Carolesson, and uh, I'm 
Teresa J. Morris is co-host on Portal Stargate on Thursdays, and then we do uh, Allied Command on Friday. We have different names for different radio shows, part of the Aquarian Radio Network and the uh, T.J. Morris ET Radio Network. Um, and so we've been broadcasting like crazy since 2012, and we enjoy broadcasting. And we love bringing you shows like today's show. This is the 56th anniversary of um, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and we're in the baby boomer generation, and uh, every year baby boomers say, where were you when the Kennedy assassination happened? And I realized um, there are probably only going to be another maybe 20, 30 years of people saying, where were you when John Kennedy was assassinated? Because they're not going to uh, the next generation is not going to be able to relate to that in the emotional impact the assassination of our our uh, president had across the nation. So uh, do you want to see if we can get John Barber on? Oh, yeah, you missed the word. He's a Emmy, a five-time Emmy Award winner. So that's fascinating. And uh, there's so many directions we can take this conversation. But I do hope we yeah, get an on... Um, the author and he's a, a TV producer and uh, stand-up comic and all kinds of stuff like that. So um, well, let's see if we can get him on. Do you want to click and see if John is able to respond? If not, we'll um, hang up John and call well, back again. Sometimes the connection's weird, but see if you can get him on first. Ladies, John, can, can you, you hear, hear me now? Now Hello. I can. Yay. Well, I've been on, I've been, thank you so much. I've been on the line for about five minutes. I called the number that you told me to call. And when I was listening to the introduction, I thought, oh, my God, their guest is a guy who can't seem to hold a job. <laughs> <laughs> I see yeah, that. John, get well, stuff together. <laughs> what is an well, Emmy? Let's job. start on the top. What's what is an Emmy, and then we'll get into all this book, the books and films. But what is an Emmy? Can you explain that to people? I know it's out of Hollywood, right? Somewhere. It, it's it's television's version of an Oscar. Oh, okay. Yes. Oh my and gosh, I, that's I, a pretty one. I see yes, a picture. Yes, and I, I had I had five of them, and I'm the only one in television. Who's had four for entertainment and one for news? Wow, wow! What an honor! Nice to know you and know what you've accomplished in life. It's amazing. Well, it's well, nice to be like chatting. To <laughs> well, it's your show. You have to tell me where you'd like to start. I mean, it's uh, it's for me. It's a, a, a really sad day because it is a Friday, and it was a Friday sixty-six years ago when John Kennedy had his brains blown out in Dealey Plaza and it ended democracy and it ended peace, not only in America, but in the whole world since that time. And I have a very, very difficult time sometimes because I have a difficult time looking at John Kennedy's face. I have a difficult time looking at uh, Jim Garrison's face. Jim Garrison is the district attorney of New Orleans, who was the only law enforcement officer to investigate the case. And uh, 
Sadly, I also have a difficult time looking at John Lennon's face. But with uh, with John Kennedy, what happens is I remember exactly where I was, where a lot of people, I think, over the age of 10. I happened to be 30 at the time. And I was in the apartment of a fellow who was trying to get a date on the phone. And I was about to return to the Hungry Eye in San Francisco where Barbara Streisand and Bill Cosby and Mort Saul all became famous. That was a place where I had my second professional job as a stand-up comic, and I did that in September of 1963, and I was so successful, they asked me to come back the last week in November of 1963. So I was in my friend's apartment, his name was Bob Klein, and I was writing jokes because I didn't want to repeat my act when I went back. And the news came around at one o'clock that he had been shot. And I, sadly, I had to be booked back into San Francisco, which, you know, is a very, or supposedly a very liberal and progressive town. And it was just days after the murder and the funeral was going on at that time and so the club was empty and the city was empty and I was booked to go into Fresno, California into a club that seated 600 people. Now the great thing about the Hungry Eye Ladies, it wasn't a nightclub that had tables. It was designed like a miniature theater. You had theater theater seats that you sat in and then they had, like in the movie theater now, they had a little cup holder so you could have, have a drink. So people literally had to pay attention to the act, and they did. It was by far the best, most progressive nightclub in America, and I was privileged to go there. But then the following week, I was supposed to go into Fresno, into a club that seated 600 people. And I told my agent, I can't go in there. I said, listen, I'm in a club that holds 150, and there are only 25 people here. And, you know, I don't want to go into an arena that's empty, I mean, that could hold 600 people. And he said, well, we can't cancel you, your book. So reluctantly, I went to Fresno. And I was staggered because it was the first time that I realized that half of America hated John Kennedy Half of them were delighted that he was dead. Now the reason wow. for that was, the reason for that was when John Kennedy was in office, he was by far the most articulate, most charming, most most progressive president probably since Teddy Roosevelt. And his family was gorgeous. Jackie was just beautiful and the kids were delightful. And John Kennedy was, I remember the energy that was in the country. Everything about the energy in America was positive. Now, a lot of people in the media knew that John Kennedy, as an A personality, had a lot of sexual dalliances with a number of movie stars and famous people, including Marilyn Monroe and then also a girlfriend of Sam Giancana, but they never reported it. So the audience or the Americans were unaware of that fact. All they could see was the wonderful charm of this man and his family. So for the two and a half years that he was president, we had this wonderful feeling of energy and positiveness in the country. 
Now I go to Fresno, and it's standing room only. People were out to celebrate. And I was shocked. Now, of course, I couldn't do any political material because the funeral was still going on. And I remembered what I had to do is I had to go off into my dressing room and spend a few hours writing material that was related to where I was. Now, I don't know why. Uh, Sometimes I feel like Nicholas Tesla. Do you know who Tesla is? Oh, yes. Okay, Nicholas Tesla was Leonardo da Vinci and Albert Einstein combined. Probably the greatest natural brain in human history. Nicholas Tesla has two or 3,000 copyrights. But he said he felt like he never invented anything, even though he invented ACDC. Uh, that's why we have electricity today. It's so thanks to Nikola Tesla. Also, why we have television and why we have radio. But he used to say, ladies, that he would just sit down quietly and open his mind. And he said all of these things would appear in his mind, these contraptions. They were fully formed, he said. He had no idea where they came from. They just came from somewhere in the universe. And he said, I feel like a stenographer just taking notes from what the universe is sending me. I thought that was really profound. And I never understood it until I started writing because I didn't know I could even write till I was 30. But anyway, I'm impressed. And then I sometimes feel that I'm channeling Mark Twain because a lot of the stuff that comes out of me by accident sounds an awful like, like Mark Twain. Anyway, I had to do this act. In Fresno, and at one time in my life, I was 12 years of age, and my mother, who was an infomaniac and an an alcoholic and just a non-existent mother, and after my father, in 1939, joined the Canadian Army to go to the peace and quiet of World War II, she brought uncles into my house like they were grapes. They came in bunches, and they were there to... (laughs) bed her and to booze with her, but most of them beat her. And a number of times I had to run to the police and bring the police back. Well, my mother got tired of having me calling the cops on her, on our uncles. So she sent me to a farm in Northern Ontario for about three months. It's a really wonderful story in my book. By the way, my autobiography, my autobiography is called Your Mother's Not a Virgin. Uh, the Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American Television. And the title came about as a result of my trying to book Jim Garrison on my morning show that you mentioned in 1970. But in any event, I'm getting ready to do uh, this this act. Now, since I'd spent a, uh, three months on a boarding farm in northern Ontario, I knew a lot about agriculture. And I remember my opening line was talking about the fact that I was really thrilled to be here. I mean, what a terrible thing to say when a funeral of the president's going on, but it was an act. I was really thrilled to be in Fresno because it's the agricultural capital of America. And one of their leading crops is Armenians. Well, it got an ovation because 
it's the largest Armenian population in the United States. And I said, you know, in Canada, nobody knows the identity of Santa Claus. We just call him St. Nicholas. But since being in Fresno, I know the real name of Santa Claus. It's Garabedian and another ovation. So in any event, I, it turned out to be, I, I was extremely successful at it. But it broke my heart because I really wanted to say things that were in my heart about the dreadful thing that had happened to the United States of America. John? I, yes, I, if you don't mind me interjecting, because I love what you're saying. You're giving us a slice of, of history that very few people uh, recognize now because of how we're, we're, we're aging and dying off. And I, I think it's very important that we record like these thoughts that you're, you're expressing to us. It's wonderful. Um, I was nine when uh, JFK was killed. Uh, I was uh, in my 20s when John Lennon died. And um, both of them were just extraordinarily hurtful to me, and yet the same reaction happened when John Lennon died. It's like some people were glad he was dead. Now, I was over in Pennsylvania in Pittsburgh, and I did not experience – it's shocking to hear that there were people celebrating uh, JFK's death. My mother was a – well, they were – my parents were Republican. But I know that my mother probably um, <laughs> defied my father, so to speak, and voted uh, for JFK because she kept a, a like a scrapbook. She they, like they were celebrities, right? She had all the pictures and and Jackie and everything. And I know that my Republican parents they just were uh, devastated, and they were my mother definitely was crying, and we were all crying. What about you, TJ? Just real quick about that, that day, because you know uh, well, it is twenty. I think fifty-six years later. What happened to you on that day? Well, can, it's sort of hard for me because my mother was a Democrat and a very uh, uh, much a big lover for John F. and Jacqueline, and she had this funny uh, record she'd ordered. I don't know if y'all remember the White House and the family and somebody was uh, being a comedian about it. But it, it was, it was, it was uh, the record was, is, was Vaughn Meter's record. It was a record of uh, the first family. And, I, and I'm glad you brought that up, and I, and I want to hear the rest of your story. But in the second documentary, which I made, which is called The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy, John Kennedy talks about von meter's record it's terrific and he makes a joke about he makes a joke about it he said he sounds more like teddy than me and he got he got a big hand but what while i was performing and doing a lot of john kennedy material and i heard von meters was the most successful comedy record ever sold it sold millions within weeks and i said to my wife god help us if John Kennedy gets killed or something, because Vaughn Meter will be out of work. Vaughn Meter could never work again after the death of John Kennedy. Well, I was living in West Monroe, Louisiana, at 115 Diane Street, and I think my mother was in a record club, uh, like a Reader's Digest club. She was very educated, and she worked to uh, key punch over at Ola Matheson, and 
But she worked really hard to keep our court floors clean and you know, a little red brick home. We were very lower middle class, I guess. But we thought we were up and coming because it was 63. But I remember we were supposed to go to Dallas that weekend. I don't know why that weekend. Ooh. To go to Dallas for the uh, Six Flags. And it was very disappointing that all that week uh, they were talking about maybe not going because the president was going to have this motorcade through Dallas and the, the traffic. And I was really, really disappointed that we weren't going to Dallas. And so I remember sitting and I could, something came over the loudspeaker and I didn't hear it, but everybody started clapping and I was sitting in my desk in school and uh i know it was an afternoon but I, everybody started clapping so i did looking around going what's going on but i was just a kid and then miss davis gave us the lecture of our life and then i heard the rest of it about the president being shot but i didn't know what we were clapping about but we sat there for the rest of the time and then had to put our heads down because the president had died and uh i was in the, i guess the seventh or eighth i'm, I'm thinking it was Janet, if you don't remember where you were, but I know I was in a desk I was in, in school. the third grade, and my teacher broke out in tears. She came in and announced a woman. I can't remember her name, and oh, she ran out, and, and she was crying, and we all burst out in tears because our teacher was crying, and Aww. they said, uh, class is, is dismissed, go home. So uh, well, then I walked in sitting there. Back to you. Let me ask, Go ahead. Let me ask you a question. First of all, very few people remember, your, since your parents, uh, Janet, were Democrats, they might have remembered that John Kennedy barely squeaked into office. And he wouldn't have gotten into office if it hadn't been for Mayor Daley and Sam Giancana and the mafiosa in Chicago who went to Virginia to convince coal miners to vote for him. So he he just, you know, it was a little crooked politics, but thank God it was him and not Richard Nixon. And that's been going on in American politics ever since the founding of the country, from George Washington to Abraham Lincoln. And Lincoln could have been impeached himself for what he did, for crying out loud. But in, 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 in any event, what was the reaction, your parents' reaction, when they heard that there was a lone assassin named Lee Harvey Oswald, and then he shot while in police custody by this guy, Jack Ruby. What was their reaction to that? Okay, I'm Janet. I'll respond first. I, so we got dismissed. I came home, and I was glued to the television, um, and I was actually watching when he got shot. So I I ran over. My mother's in the kitchen, and I I told everybody, I goes, come and watch this. Uh, Oswald just got shot, and they were going, what? And they and so um, that was everything was just so shocked. It was like bam, 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 right? We we're going through shock. So my parents were Republican, but they were devastated over JFK's death and assassination, and my mother. Um, was especially devastated because she was so dedicated. And she, we, we had the album. I remember that album that you're talking about. I remember listening to it. And and, she, and so I think she was sneaking. My mother was a, um, she was a, a Democrat at heart, you know, because she voted, she voted for them in her heart. She may have actually voted for them, but I don't think publicly she could ever admit 
I voted for JFK. She probably told my father, who was a staunch Republican, that, uh, yes, I voted for whoever it was. Um, wh- who was the opposition? I forget. Nixon. It was, oh, Nixon. Nixon. Yeah. Nixon, yeah. Because I know they voted for Nixon next time around when Nixon was up again, and they were happy that Nixon was in. Um, so, anyway. Um, so well, what, what did you so TJ's parents were you were your parents were Democrats or at least your mother was how did they respond to Oswald's assassination? Do you well, remember? I know I was watching TV, which is strange that uh, I don't know where I was when he got shot to be watching television unless it was in my home. But I do remember uh, the shooting and I remember the stories and I know that before that. I wasn't politically uh, entertained. I don't know. I think I I started school when I was five, so I must have been 10 or 11 in the seventh grade because I know I was just going to turn 12 to go to the ninth grade in Houston. But I do remember the boys swinging in elementary school yelling, Khrushchev, Khrushchev, boom, 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 swinging back and forth and jumping out like they were airplane pilots. I thought that was curious. But I was thinking by bringing John on today what I could remember, and I don't remember where my parents were. I uh, Maybe they were at work. I don't know. But why was I in front of a TV watching it, Janet? And you were too. So maybe they were right. with me. But I don't know how. Excuse me, love. It's not a question of where they were. What did they think when Lee Harvey Oswald was shot before he could get into a courtroom while he's surrounded by police in the basement of the Dallas police station. What did they say? I don't remember them talking to me about it. And my parents' uh, mother, I remember it was real sad. It was like a funeral atmosphere. But they, uh, I don't know if it's because we were Southern or I don't know. I know dad became a Republican. Mother and dad, uh, dad became a Republican again, and they split up and divorced. So, all that happened during that time, but I don't remember. I remember it was really, really sad times. But I don't. Now I know what I thought. I thought when it happened uh, that Johnson had something to do with the whole thing, which I don't know if he did or not. But as a child, this is what I'm saying: is this was the first time I became aware of anything political. I don't know how to say it uh, except that I start. It was like something woke me up. And I started paying attention, yeah. but I wasn't paying attention until well, all of it, that happened. Same it's thing. Interesting. With it's interesting yeah. that you say that you, you weren't paying attention. I was thirty years of age. I was not yet a citizen. I was <laughs> I just survived my first deportation, and I was deported a second time. So I was I wasn't thinking about anything else except becoming an American citizen. But I was startled. By the fact that there was absolutely no outrage by the American press, by the newspaper, by uh, on television, I was shocked that nobody was outraged that here Lee Harvey Oswald was murdered before he could get into a court. Now, the reason he was murdered is because he did not shoot John Kennedy. The paraffin test that he took, a paraffin test, is something that you take to, to see whether you fired a, a, a rifle or a, a, or a pistol. And he failed the Parison test, but the FBI lied about it. And the one who discovered mm-hmm. all this was Jim Garrison, 
Jim Garrison also discovered the guy who ordered Jack Ruby to shoot Lee Harvey Oswald. Of course, nobody knew this at the time. But to me, I was shocked that nobody in the mainstream media, all of them who loved John Kennedy, said not one word of suspicion about why was this guy killed before he could get into court. And I'm a street kid. I was raised in the street, out in the street as an orphan when I was six years of age. So I knew there was something fishy, but I had a life to live, and so I sort of forgot all about it. But have you ever heard of a woman named Mae Brussel? M-A-E-B-R-U-S-S-E-L-L. You ever heard the name? No, I haven't. Have you, T.J.? No, I guess T.J. not. T.J. No. Okay. Uh, have, have, you, have you heard the name Mark Lane? I think I've heard of that name. Mark Lane wrote Just Rush to Judgment. Does that sound familiar to you? Uh, No. <laughs> Okay, you've heard of the day. okay. You've heard of the Warren Report? Oh yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. The Warren Report was conducted in secret for nine months. In secret. And uh the person in charge of the Warren Report was a fellow named Alan Dulles, who was the said head of the CIA, who hated John Kennedy. And he was the one that talked John Kennedy into going into the Bay of Pigs because he convinced Kennedy that there would be so much uprising by Cubans as a result of help from the United States that the Cubans themselves would oust Castro, which was obviously a lie because the Cubans rushed to Castro's aid and within minutes they had gathered up these 500 or 1,000 uh, anti-Castro Cubans that we had trained. There was supposed to be air support. And Alan Dulles was screaming for air support. And John Kennedy, a month before the Bay of Pigs, said, there'll be no military intervention by the United States in Cuba. It's all in the movie. So anyway, when he denied it, John Kennedy fired... Alan Dulles and his assistant named Cavill. And Cavill's brother was the mayor of Dallas who changed the parade route against Secret Service recommendations to slow it down to 11 miles an hour before the book depository. They had planted Lee Harvey Oswald, but there were no shots fired from the book depository. The shots came from the front, from the grassy knoll, there were Garrison determined that it was uh, it was a military sabotage. They had three teams of three people. You had the rifleman, you had the guy who picked up the shell, and because this is the most important killing that they have in history. Now, some of you may not remember the fact that the CIA and Eisenhower and Dulles murdered a democratically elected president of Iran in 1952. His name was Mossadegh because he had nationalized British petroleum. And that was a bad example for the rest of the world. We also murdered Salvador Allende in Chile, who was also democratically elected and a socialist, but he was going to nationalize AT&T 
and Pepsi-Cola. And at the time, Richard Nixon was the attorney for Pepsi-Cola. And so Nixon assigned Kissinger and the CIA to also murder him. So we've gone all around the planet murdering people. So this business of Russia interfering with our elections is nonsense. And if they are interfering, it's on Facebook or Instagram. We use assassins and we use murders. But anyway, the reason I bring up Mark Lane's name, Mark Lane, four years after the Warren Report, most wrote the most brilliant legal scalping and evisceration of the Warren Report. He disproved legally everything. It should have been turned into trash. His book was a bestseller, but it was not published in the United States because they wouldn't publish the truth. It was published in England with the help of philosopher Bertrand Russell, and Mark Lane only got $1,500. But it sold thousands and thousands in weeks, and America would be embarrassed if it wasn't published here, so it was published here and became a bestseller. Now, the reason I bring up the name May Brussel, May Brussel was the uh, granddaughter of the founder of iMagnum Department Stores. iMagnum Department Stores, one of those, like Neiman Marcus, it was one of the real luxury stores in the United States. A Beverly Hills millionaire housewife with five children. And she, like you ladies, was watching TV. And she saw Jack Ruby shoot Lee Harvey Oswald. And she said, this is a bunch of bullshit. And she started to investigate what she called the deep state. Now we hear the deep state now because of, uh, because of Donald Trump becoming president of the United States. Now we hear also about fake news since Donald Trump became president of the United States. But the deep state is still there. And the fake news seems to be getting worse in spite of the fact that he keeps complaining about it. Maybe he complains about it because they're attacking him and he calls it, calls it fake. But May Brussel, I suggest that you ladies tell your audience to go to the May Brussel archives. For about 12 years, once a week, she did a broadcast on public radio one hour, once a week, and she spent most of her time on the assassination of John Kennedy, the assassination of Martin Luther King, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, the assassination of John Lennon, and they are all linked. They are absolutely all linked. And the linchpin to having this all unravel is that the murder of John Kennedy is a cold case in the Justice Department. The House Select Committee on Assassinations concluded in the late 70s. Four shots had been fired. Therefore, there was a conspiracy to kill John Kennedy and Martin Luther King, and it's a cold case. In any event, May Brussel is by far the greatest researcher. She is better than all of them combined, and I must tell you, there are 20 brilliant researchers that I know of. So on this day, if your audience is at all interested, they just go to May Brussel, click on one of the shows, and they will be startled at how astounding the information and the facts are.
so uh, what what were the ones that you are connected the assassinations that are all connected it was JFK Martin Luther and who else yeah uh which uh, other two John, well, well the thing is you know you you probably heard that I have a lot of these conferences going on in Dallas and in Pittsburgh in New Orleans and they're all an absolute waste of time they are knitting circles. There are social clubs. I mean, you have great speakers at them. Oliver Stone is speaking at one. And one of the lead investigators at the House Select Committee, Robert Tannenbaum, is speaking at one. And they're brilliant people, but it's meaningless. It's information. We already know Jim Garrison solved the case. And you probably saw today Donald Trump once again caved into the CIA there were supposedly 2,000 more files released this week. And President Trump says, no, we can't release them because it affects national security. What 56-year-old wow. murder affects national security? The reason they don't want the CIA to release the files. Listen, you ladies are smart enough to know that intelligence agencies don't talk in English. They talk in code. So they have nothing in their files that says this is how we killed the son of a bitch, and this is the guy that a couple of the guys that we hired, and this is what none of that. The reason they don't want them files released is because Jim Garrison's files are also at the House Select Committee. Now the Warren Commission files are supposed to be released in the year 2037. Jim Garrison's files won't be released for another 20 or 30 years after that because they name all the names. That's what everyone is afraid of. And if you go to my site, which is www.johnbarbersworld.com, you can see the first release of the Garrison files because I have them. And I feel that I owe it to the country that gave me a life the country that, the only country in the world. You know, uh, can I put this on pause a second and ask and oh. tell you something? Angel? I don't know if we can do that. <laughs> well, no, no, I mean, I'm going to put myself on pause to say something. Okay, okay, go ahead. After, okay, after I've been deported the second time. Now, let me explain something about when you're deported. Uh, the first time I was deported, I was 17 years of age, and uh, they thought that, that this 17-year-old, some some young Republican, it's funny, I was in a boarding house, and I'm only 17, and the guy's 28 years of age, and I say at the dinner table, that's the first time I've ever heard those two words together, young and Republican, and everybody started to laugh, and here was a guy that loathed FDR said that God crippled him because he was a commie and gave him an ugly wife and Eleanor to wake up to look at because he was a commie. And I said to him, you know, I said, you know, I don't understand this. Your grandfather collects Social Security. You should be thanking FDR for that in the New Deal. He saved capitalism by introducing the New Deal and Social Security, for crying out loud. And I say, you know, I go around Los Angeles and I see roads named after Roosevelt and golf courses and high schools. And I say, you know, a friend told me, because I don't know much about America, that the recession was not caused by a Democrat. It was called by, caused by a Republican named Hoover. And I said, the only thing they named after Hoover 
was a vacuum cleaner. Well, everybody applauded and started to laugh, and he ran off and called the car, called the FBI, said, we got a commie in the house. And, and three, uh, three police cars stormed around this place to pick up a 17-year-old kid. Well, in any event, they offered, me what, they offered me what they call voluntary departure. That means if I get $28, I can get on a bus and I can go from Los Angeles to Toronto. But I didn't have it. And I was afraid to call my mother because my mother hated me. My mother's the one that wished I was in jail all the time. She always compared me to my useless father. She sent me off to this farm in the north to get rid of me so she could horse around with more uncles. But I had no choice but to call her, and I had to call her collect. And the only reason she she took the call was to tell me what a piece of crap I was and that I hope I stayed in jail the rest of my life. So I tried to escape, and they caught me. In any event, when you're deported, and I was deported, um, you have to get permission from the Consul General of the United States in Toronto or Vancouver or wherever for permission to just ask permission of the Immigration Service to come back into the country. So it's a two-stage process. Now, when I was... Uh, when I was deported, I was de- I decided that I'm going to become an expert on America. And I spent six months in the law libraries at the University of Toronto. And I knew more about immigration law than anybody in the United States. I just memorized it. And I knew every congressman, every senator. I knew every, the origin of every war. I knew every capital of America. I knew everything about this country. Now I had to go before the consul general, and it was a lady. She was about 50 years of age, very stern-looking woman, but very attractive in a blue suit with a, with a skirt and not slacks. And I was waiting for her to ask me about the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the Supreme Court. I was asking everything. Guess what they asked me? And I was totally what unprepared for it. She what? said, Mr. She said, Mr. Barber, why do you want to go to the United States? And I was totally mm-hmm. floored. I was totally floored. I didn't expect it. And so I started to uh, I started to stammer and then I found the words. They just flowed right out of me. I said that you know that I spent most of my time as a youngster in the theater watching Frank Capra movies. Mr. Smith goes to Washington, and they're all made in the United States, and Jimmy Stewart, and I fell in love with America, so I learned about America. I learned that America was the intellectual founder of the United States of America was Thomas Paine. He was a poor son of an English bootmaker, and I said that the intellectual founder of the Constitution was the richest man in America, Thomas Jefferson, who wrote laws to protect the rest of us, like Thomas Paine, from people like himself. I said, it's the only country in the world made up of every other country in the world. It's the only country that's designed and built on laws, which are the Constitution. And I went on and on. When I was finished, when I was finished, and that speech is in the book. I remember it. It's in the book. And when it was over, she just looked at me and she said, Mr. Barber, I do not want to be the one 
to deprive you of your chance at American dream. I give you permission to ask the Internal Rev- uh, Immigration Service to re-enter the country. Well, I, it was the first time in my life I cried and cried and cried. I couldn't stop. And I, so I came to the and so I got my green card when I was 29 years of age, and I came to the United States. Now I said I'm putting this on pause for a minute. Oh, I want to tell you a cute, just one little cute story. Go for it. Yes. I was. uh, It was. I was at the time 29, and then about 18 years later, I get this letter. From a guard, I, I was uh, uh, at a place in San Diego called Terminal Island, and they found me on a bunch of clothes because I'd jumped into a clothes basket and went down to the basement. And I was going to try to uh, get out through the doors at the bottom, and this and this uh, uh, security guard found me and asked me what I was trying to do, and I told him escape. So in any event, I had, because I'd cased the place perfectly. And so when he and, – and, and they interrogated me for an hour because they were sure I had help from Mexicans. But I said, I don't speak uh, uh, Spanish. I, I did it myself. But it was a Wednesday, and I said, why is this place closed? Everything's locked up. I knew I could get out. And they laughed. They said, it's July 4th. It's an American holiday. So that, ladies, is why I decided to become a, a scholar. But in any event, 17 years later – I get this letter from a guy in San Diego, and he says, you have got to be the John Barber. You, uh, you are the guy that I found in the dirty clothes in the basement at uh, Terminal Island. I'm telling my wife that and my neighbors that and my friends that. You must tell me it's you. I know it's you. So I wrote him back a letter, and I enclosed an 8 by 10 glossy of me with a, a co-host, Sarah Purcell, that my 10-year-old son discovered, a 10-year-old boy discovered Sarah Purcell, and I sent him back this lovely note saying, you know, the truth is I thought about you often because if you hadn't caught me, I would either be in jail now or I'd be in the Merchant Marine because I would have swum out, I would have swum out to some boat and joined up just to get out of that place. But instead, here I am hosting the number one show in America, that I've created wearing a $600 suit. So there you go. Wow. <laughs> and that's another part of the story. We'll have to go over that. So um, I forgot to mark down where we were before we went up. To, I love the story. Thank you for sharing that. What do you think, TJ? Feedback? Hello? I have to unmute. Are you there? Yeah, it takes me a minute to unmute myself. <laughs> I can hear mm-hmm. you trying to get to me. No, I'm very impressed with all of this. Uh, I I know it's a tough time, and it's hard to believe it's 56 years uh, ago that this happened. And there's pros and cons, and everybody's going to have an opinion as to what's going on. But, John, why did you put this JFK assassination in, in the, this, uh, I guess, film and book, because you sent me a trailer, and I, I'm i glad you did, but I've, I have that memory so vividly about, you know, people. You can see, uh, I, I guess I've seen it over and over again, but 
just the fact that you can tell he was hit more than once for sure, right? But uh, one of our managers said, you know, there's so much stuff out there. He was really uh, – he's, he's, we're covering it tonight on another radio show as well. But it's one of those things where it touches so many people, but we, we can't seem to let go of it. But I'd like to hear more of how the John Barber history – is affected by this JFK assassination, if, if you know what oh, I well, mean. Well, uh, yes, I, I can tell you very simply. Um, as a youngster, I used to spend all a lot of my time. There was a fellow named Lorne Green in Canada. Uh, Lorne Green was on the CBC, and he had this uh, Orson Welles voice and used to tell great stories. And, of course, he became successful moved to the United States and became Ben Cartwright on Bonanza. So you probably know who he yeah. is. And then there was we a fellow named Gordon. There was another fellow named Gordon Sinclair that wrote stories about real people. And as a youngster in the sixth grade, I was assigned by the teacher to be reading these stories. So as a youngster, the thing that kept me alive was listening to and reading stories. And half of them, of course, were what? I have to tell you something. Sure. I don't. This. I don't know if this is important to our future with what little time we have left on the planet. But I met Lauren Green probably about this JFK time. He came, him and uh, Haas and Little Joe, and I was real upset that Adam didn't come. I had a crush on Adam. And but, uh, <laughs> Lauren Green came with Little Joe and Hoss, but I got to meet all three of them at Neville High School in Monroe, Louisiana. They came down, and it was a big auditorium full of people, but they stayed after, and, and Mother let us get in line to, you know, stand with them and get a picture signed, and he hugged me. So I was very impressed. So Lauren Green, uh, that's the same one that was, you know, Bonanza, right? So. Yes, well, what I was what I was trying to say was that as a youngster, it was stories that kept me alive. Now I'm older; it's the telling of stories, which I tell in the book, which is doing exceptionally well. So, to me, the Jim Garrison story was the most important story I'd ever run across. It's like a Frank Capra movie, except it has. Mm-hmm. An unhappy ending. Now, what a lot of people are unaware of, even people who think they're educated, you can go to Stanford or you can go to Harvard or Yale or Princeton, and you won't, you will not learn the truth about not only American history, about the media. When John Kennedy was killed, a company or a person could only own five television stations, five radio stations, or five newspapers. The worst president in American history, Bill Clinton, in the 90s, signed the Communications Act, which turned 95% of our media over to six corporations. We do not have free press now in the United States. The reason I made the second documentary is because when Trump was running as a candidate against the others, he brought up the business of fake news. And I recall an interview I did with Jim Garrison on September 5th, 1981, for three hours. I was the only one he told his case to after he lost the conspiracy trial of Clay Shaw. But he won the perjury trial, and that was prevented by the the United States. Now, 
what I did when I heard Trump, I went back and got these tapes, and it sounded like, my God, that sounds like Donald Trump, but it was Jim Garrison. Now, President Trump has been in office now for a couple of years. If he wants to get rid of fake news, all he has to do is sign an executive order reversing the Communications Act. But he has yet to do that. Now, maybe in this, and I think he's almost a slam dunk to be reelected. Maybe he's waiting until 2020, and maybe he'll return to free press to the United States. But so far, he's made no noises about that. So in any event, in 1970, with challenges to television stations in the United States by minority groups, one of the networks affected was ABC. There were 20,000 Chicanos marching in Los Angeles because they wanted more representation on ABC. They wanted more representation in the police department and in local government. So ABC caved in. They were broadcasting cartoons in the morning, and they decided to have a 90-minute morning news show, news information show. And so they were looking for hosts for the show. The slam-dunk host was a fellow named Mario Machado. Mario Machado was like Ricardo Montalban, the movie star, really handsome, most successful announcer, actor in Los Angeles. Everybody thought he was going to get it, and it would have been nice if he'd gotten it. I was working out comedy material at a place in Pasadena called the Ice House with with a guy named Steve Martin. And I go out to the lobby, and there's Mario. And he says, John, I just came from an audition at ABC. You should go there and audition. They're going to do a morning show. And I said, Mario, you're everybody's ethnic, for crying out loud. That's why they're challenging the license. You're going to get that job. And he said, John, I'm a great reader of the news, but I can't ad-lib anything. He said, you're a stand-up comic. All your stuff is political. Here's the producer's name. His name is Brad Lockman. Go and audition. I auditioned against 20 people who were very famous, dear, and I got the job. And one of the stories I came across, I put Muhammad Ali on the air for 90 minutes when no one would put him on the air because he vowed he would not go to Vietnam and kill yellow people because yellow people were no threat to him, just white people in the United States, and that he'd become a Muslim and a minister, and so he had religious reasons for not going. Everybody in the United States wanted Muhammad Ali hung as a traitor. The same with Jane Fonda. Now, and at the time, they used to have what they called the Fairness Doctrine, or Equal Time. I could, when when I had Jane Fonda on, I said, Jane, I uh, uh, before we got on the air, I agree with you. The war is illegal. I mean, this Gulf of Tonkin resolution is a bunch of crap. But I cannot be on your side on the show because then conservatives or Republicans or whatever could get equal time. And that's why you had better broadcasting then than you have now. Everything now is either 95% Republican right wing or 5% fake liberal. It just There is no communication and no television 
in America anymore. In any event, it was in 1967, Jim Garrison uh, said that he'd solved the uh, John Kennedy murder. He was uh, murdered by the Central Intelligence Agency, and he'd prove it in court. But he couldn't get into court because every network in America under the control of the CIA is demonstrated by Senator Frank Church in the film, The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John Kennedy. They found 400 CIA agents working at CBS, ABC, NBC, Reader's Digest, everywhere. They were infiltrated. So in, in, any, in any event, I, I thought, and he couldn't get in until January 29th, 1969, serendipity, the birthday of my son. He lost the conspiracy case, as I said, but he won the perjury case. And it would have been a slam dunk. And and Clay Shaw would have confessed with all the evidence that that is demonstrated in the Shaw files that you can find in my site. But the government moved in and stopped the investigation. So it was over with. I'd forgotten about it. I had the number one show in the country for a morning show. I had won my first Emmy, and I was looking forward to becoming a citizen. And when I became a citizen, my citizenship papers were given to me by a U.S. Senator, John Tunney. So that's how far I'd come from my, from my roots as a roustabout, as Charles Dickens' character, for crying out loud. But in any event, I'm in a bookstore, and I pick up a book called Heritage of Stone. And the author is Jim Garrison. I think, oh, my God, is it the same guy? And I start to read it, ladies. And I don't leave the bookstore. I learn that the Zapruder film is owned by Time Life, and he has to sue them and take them to the Supreme Court so he can show a jury. There is a forensic pathologist named Fink who's recalled as, as called as a defense witness by Diamond, who was Shaw's attorney, to say that Kennedy was shot in the back of the head. Under cross-examination, he has to confess under oath there was no autopsy. They were prevented by admirals and generals and FBI agents from either looking at films or x-rays. So if you look in the Warren report, you will not find one picture or one x-ray. They had two cartoon drawings of John Kennedy's head with a pencil drawing of a bullet going through his head. And another thing that people do not know, before the trial, Jim Garrison assembled three judges, and he wanted to, uh, uh, to rule on whether or not he had enough material and enough reason to bring Clay Shaw to trial. That's how he was protecting his case and Clay Shaw's rights. The three-judge panel then heard from Diamond, who was Shaw's attorney, who introduced the 26 volumes of the Warren Report. And guess what the three independent judges said? This is not an investigation. The Warren Report is hearsay. It is not permissible in any court. Did you ever hear Walter Cronkite or Dan Rather or Huntley Brinkley or any of these people talking about the fact that three judges ruled it hearsay, that Jim Garrison was right? No, absolutely he did not. So anyway... What happened is that I called Jim Garrison to be a guest on my show. 
And he said to me, you'll never get away with it, John. And I said, well, Mr. Garrison, we're the most popular morning show in the country. I'll interview you for half an hour. We'll open the phone because there'll be thousands of people who want to talk to you. He said, John, you'll be prevented from having me on the air. I said, there's no way they can stop me because it's live. So we have reluctantly agreed to do it. When we were Uh chatting, he said to me, John, you know, it's 1970. It's six years after the Warren report. Do you know that the recent Harris polls say that 81% of all Americans do not believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone or did it at all? And I said, well, why aren't people storming the streets? He said, well, you didn't see the second question in the, in the, in the poll. And I said, what's the second question? And he said, the second question is this. Would you like to see a further investigation into this case, but this time we investigate the FBI and the CIA. And he said only 23% would go that far. What does that say about Americans? And this is where that just blurred that out of me. I said, Mr. Garrison, I know what my mother and father did in the rumble seat of the car or on the pool table in the bedroom to conceive me. But don't ever tell me my mother's not a virgin. Well, he laughed and he said, it sounds like it sounds like Mark Twain, my favorite writer, because Mark Twain said it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they have been fooled. And we've been fooled since November 22nd, 1963. And he was right, because the next day I was fired and he was canceled. But I must tell you. I never thought it had anything to do with my trying to tell his story. I'm in show business. You know, you're you're a comic. I work with Bobby Darren for two weeks, and then I got to work with somebody else. So I never thought of it. But I'm going to tell you something interesting about Garrison. Two things I will tell you about Mr. Garrison. I asked him why he ever thought he could take on the federal government. First thing he said was, I guess I thought, saw one too many Frank Capra movies, John, and I was under the mistaken delusion that I was living in the country that I was born in. He said, he said I believed the Warren Report. I'm an FBI agent. I was in the military. I was at Dachau at the end of the Second World War when we freed that extermination camp. He said, I believed my government. I could never imagine that my government would be covering up the murder of John Kennedy, and even worse, to be the ones who committed the murder. And I said, well, how did you change your mind? He said, the same way you met me, by accident. He met Congressman Hale Boggs, who was the only dissenting member of the Warren Report. And on the plane, Hale Boggs said to him, you know, that kid could never shoot that rifle and kill anything. I know all about guns. That kid didn't do that. And Garrison said, you mean? And Boggs said, yes, there's something fishy. Garrison got three sets of the 26 volumes of the Warren Report, one in his home, one in the car, one in the office, and he memorized it. And guess what happened to Hale Boggs? Hale Boggs went before Congress, and you can go to the congressional record and look it up. He said we have to investigate the FBI, because J. Edgar Hoover lied to us about the murder of John Kennedy. 
We have to investigate the Central Intelligence Agency. It's on the congressional record, but guess what happened to Mr. Boggs? He is driven to the airport to get into a private plane. The plane disappears over Alaska. They never find the plane or his oh, body. That's right. And guess wow. who drove him to the airport? Billy Clinton. Who? Bill Clinton oh and God. his wife were recruited by the CIA where they, when they were in college. And they were the ones that sent Clinton to the Soviet Union. It's like Obama's mother was in the CIA. Now, in, in the movie, you see Richard Helms, head of the Central Intelligence Agency, being interrogated by Senator Frank Church when they were investigating the CIA. And that's when Helms confesses that there are 400 people working for them, writing the news for America to create a foreign policy where there are enemies everywhere, enemies in Vietnam, commies, they're going to take over Asia. And then, of course, look what happened with Iraq. We know Saddam Hussein had absolutely nothing to do with 911, and a million Mm -hmm. and a half Americans marched to try to stop it. It didn't matter. The CIA and Bush and, and Condoleezza Rice and Cheney and these war criminals... And indeed, according to Nuremberg, they are war criminals, destroyed an ancient civilization. And they're walking free, and Bush still gets four or $500,000 for a speech. America would have to improve just to be a mess. I have a couple questions. I'm sure TJ does as well. Uh, okay. Um, well, and we have a little... Uh, yeah, we have like less than an hour. Okay, so how did uh, Garrison prove the CIA did it? What was his proof? Well, uh, let me. Uh, I said earlier, all you have to do, and I just posted it. Uh, the sixty-seven okay. files that won't be released by the CIA. I have, and I started releasing some of them about three or four months ago, and I've released five. I'm going to give you uh, just a little bit of information from these files that prove that Jim Garrison was absolutely right when he proved that the Central Intelligence Agency murdered the President of the United States. Now, first, at the beginning of the film, there is a document from the Central Intelligence Agency dated 1967. And it's addressed to the legal department. And they say we have to supply help or give help to Clay Shaw in New Orleans. Otherwise, Jim Garrison is going to get a conviction for conspiracy. Now, that alone does not prove that the CIA did it. What it proves is that they hindered a illegally disrupted and sabotaged at the most important criminal investigation in America. And since that day, it's been proven that 10 CIA agents infiltrated Garrison's office. But let me give you some of the stuff that he had on Clay Shaw. Jurors were told, you know, he's got a perjury conviction, by the way, in eight minutes, which you never heard about. Uh, But the problem was to some of the jurors, is that Garrison was never able to prove that Shaw 
was CIA. Now, under oath, the CIA lies, even though constitutionally they're supposed to tell the truth, they lie. And Clay Shaw lied when he said he wasn't with the CIA. This is how good Garrison was. He got 10 years of all of Clay Shaw's employment records and 10 years of all his tax records. And guess what? There he was, an important, prominent member of an outfit called Permandex set up by the Central Intelligence Agency. Now, that was not enough to convince any of the jurors, so Garrison found a non-political reason that maybe Shaw would want to see John Kennedy dead. He and a half a dozen other investors paid a million dollars for a nickel mine in Cuba. And when Castro took over from Batista, he confiscated the nickel mine. And when John Kennedy failed to supply air support to Dulles and the CIA, the nickel mine stayed in Castro's hands. And, of course, Clay Shaw lost a million dollars. Then you have a lady named Barbara Messina. Affidavits. She spent many afternoons and many evenings having dinner prior to the assassination with Jack Ruby and with Clay Shaw. Now there was a guy named James Whalen. Gets even better. This would have gotten Shaw 99 years in prison. James Whalen was offered $25,000 by the Central Intelligence Agency through the person of Clay Shaw and David Ferry to murder Jim Garrison. $10,000 in advance, $15,000 upon completion. James Whalen was so nervous, he's a hired gun, he goes to Garrison and confesses it. And he signs an affidavit, and he says, I thought about doing it, but not for the money, Mr. Garrison. My daughter is deathly ill. And the government has promised me, if I kill you, they will cure my daughter with the best medical help. I just couldn't do it. Now you have a guy. Here's another thing. They all talked in code. You know, uh, people in intelligence talk in code. And Jim Garrison broke the code. In other words, Lee Harvey Oswald, David Ferry, Jack Ruby all talked in code. And in the files, you see how they broke the code. Jim Garrison found out, just as simply as can be, the fellow who gave Jack Ruby the orders to kill Lee Harvey Oswald. You could have done it. I could have done it. The New York Times could have done it. The Warren Report could have done it. It's simple CSI cop work. With all these records... He found that these guys, Shaw and Ferry, they were all making phone calls to a phone number prior to November 22nd to an apartment in Chicago, Illinois, owned by a lady who was the mistress of a guy named Lawrence B. Myers, a mafiosa and successful businessman. It was Lawrence B. Myers who went to Dallas to order Jack Ruby to murder Lee Harvey Oswald because, by mistake, they left in the Warren Report information that a guy named Lawrence B. Myers, the day before the murder, is at the Campania Motel, Hotel, 
talking to his guest, Jack Ruby. Well, it gets even worse, especially for Shaw. There was a fellow named Henry Lesnick, a professor at the university, uh, Northwestern University in Illinois. He sent an affidavit to Jim Garrison. His roommate spent one year as Clay Shaw's lover, and he had replaced the previous male lover who, after a year, had a transgender, transsexual sexual operation. And when he became a she, Clay Shaw kicked her out. And then there were three 20-year-old male hookers, all testifying under oath. They were paid $20 to perform these homosexual acts with Clay Shaw, David Ferry, and Jack Ruby. Now, the greatness of Jim Garrison's brilliance First, as an attorney, and secondly, as a human being, he would not allow his staff to leak any of this information to the press because Shaw's devious and deviant homosexual lifestyle had nothing to do with a conspiracy case. So it was never allowed. He saved it for the perjury case because you know, and I know, and the CIA knows. The Clay Shaw, who was portrayed by all the media in New Orleans as this upstanding, successful businessman who's shown a bright light on New Orleans, he would not want these three male hookers and Lesnick coming into this courtroom and telling these salacious stories to a jury. He would have caved in immediately. And the CIA knew it and moved in and shut down that case and every newsman in America knew it but they were under the control of what they call Project Mockingbird which is the CIA and nobody heard about it and you see all about it it's all documented in the film that's how smart Garrison was now I'm going to tell you a little bit about the man's character I asked him in the interview that I did with him for three hours if he would do it over again. And there was a long, long pause. He said, you know, John, I'm not sure. I lost a great family. My wife divorced me. And I lost the best district attorney's office in the United States, so I'm not sure. Almost broke my heart to hear him say that because I've had people ask me, would you have told Jim Garrison's story if you knew that you were going to lose your morning show and Real People was the most successful show in American history by ratings. We got one half of everybody who was watching television from 1979 to 1982 when I was doing the show. And I was making $30,000 an hour. So I've had a lot of people ask me, would you do the same thing over again? Well, I'm not sure about the first time, but the second time I would have because it's just too great a story to tell. And in any event, his wife, Liz, divorced him, and she got a lot of money, and she was easy prey for the next man who came into her life. She married the next man who came into her life, and he spent all her money. She ended up being broke. When I made the first mm-hmm. documentary with Mr. Garrison in 1992, he was on his deathbed, and his go-between between me and him was his daughter, Elizabeth, she was also the go-between between Oliver Stone. 
because Oliver, when he was making JFK, also wanted to do a documentary. But Elizabeth said, no, my father wants John to make it because John has lost two of the greatest shows in television trying to tell my father's story. So I had the unique privilege of being the only one to whom he spoke. But she told me that on the deathbed, he told her, Elizabeth, to get uh, the brothers and sisters, gathered them by the bed to get his best friend, who happened to be a minister, get a marriage certificate and find Liz and bring her there. So she did that, and Liz came to the house and wanted to know what was going on. And Mr. Garen said, Liz, you're going to marry me again. She said it didn't work out the first time. And he said, well, honey, you know, it lasted years. This one may only last hours, but you're going to marry me. And he, she said, why would I do that? And he said, you know, I know you've had a little tough luck, but as a retired judge, I get a very, very substantial pension. And when oh, I die, yeah. when I die, that pension is yours. They got married, he died, and she lived on the pension. Oh, wow, that's cool. That's a great do, story. Do, do Your you know anybody? Today. Yeah. Uh, we've got a caller here, I believe, on 619. I don't no, know. Let's not take a call. Of yours. No. Oh, yeah, you know I, what? No. I, 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 love, listen, uh, I, I was most successful when I did the AM show, it was live. When I did the news, it was live. In the first year of Real People, it was live. So if you have a caller, now the caller may disagree with what I'm saying. And, you know, because there are a lot of people who believe the, the government when it is so obviously a lie. Uh, so I would suggest, if you if you don't mind, take calls. Well, one Okay, person, but don't let the guy take, don't let the person take over. I mean, they can ask their question, but don't let them take over the rest of the show. So that's all I'm, <laughs> I'm requesting. It's oh, like, okay. it, you know, if they start getting long-winded, just, just uh you know, you said, oh, oh, hey, oh, listen, do we have that okay. yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, hold on. Let me tell you one quick story. I, I, I understand okay. uh, I understand absolutely what it is you're saying. When I did the AM show in Los Angeles, the general manager of the station did not want me to take phone calls. And I said, well, we're going to take them because when you have an interesting guest, you'll g- get great phone calls. Well, he uh, resisted. The phone calls became one of the most popular things. And one time, I got a call from a woman in her 70s who called to say goodbye because she was going to commit suicide. She had been a successful ballerina, and her, her lover was a ballerina who had committed suicide, and she wanted to uh, join him. I kept her on the phone for half an hour. It was one of the highest ratings we ever had because her story was unbelievable. Now, so if I feel that your caller is just carrying on and not supplying any really important information, I will cut them off for you. <laughs> Thank you. You have an experience. Well, I've got one. Uh, I have one right in, but let me see. Uh, San Diego, did you want to ask John a question or be a part of this radio show? Yeah, hi. I I just wanted to chime in real quick with John. Can you hear me okay? What's your name? Yes, what's your name? What's your name? Yeah, John, this is Scott. You're you're pal in San Diego, and you sent me your book about a week ago, 
and uh, I got you hooked up oh, with another my goodness. show. So you're on Bless friendly your heart. Turf, okay? Yeah. You're on friendly turf. Listen, I, you know, one thing that, that troubles me and worries me, John, now I was nine years old when, when President Kennedy was killed, and I made it a point after reading the paperback edition of the Warren Report a year later, even at the age of 10 by that time, I could see what a crock that was, even as a kid. And the first book that I read after that was Mark Lane's Rush to Judgment. And I made it a point. Yes, I made it a point to read uh, uh, just dozens and dozens of books over the years and, and look at your films and stuff. And what troubles me, John, is in today's world, less than half of the people uh, alive today were alive and had conscious memories of the events of 56 years ago. Are the young people taking up the, the torches and demanding? Uh, I, you know, that's a wonderful question, Scott, and it gets to what the ladies had mentioned about so many people dying. The truth is, uh, when I spoke to Garrison in 1970, 83% of all Americans didn't believe the government. Now it's down to about 63 because everybody is dying off. But when I debuted the film at the Texas Theater a couple of years ago, there were 300 people in the audience, and 75% of them, Scott, had not been born when John Kennedy was killed, and the film yeah. still got a standing ovation. So the impact of the information is very strong, except now we live in a world, in a country, not just a world, but in a country, there is no more socialization. We become isolated little islands unto ourselves. We, have our, we live on our cell phones. That's how we talk to people. We don't talk to humans. We talk to this machine. We talk to the television set. There, you know, when I was younger, and you probably remember, there were great labor unions. There used to be a peace movement in this country. I mean, as, yeah. as early as, as the Iraq War, a million and a half Americans got together to march against Iraq. You can't find a peace movement anywhere. You can't well, find any sense of communication. So I think the truth is nobody cares. Well, I sure as hell care because I remember, and I uh, became informed over the years, and that's got to count for something. I'll give you one more thing, and then I'll let you go. Uh, one of the problems that I've noticed in the last 40 years or so, even longer, is people don't realize that even today, in 2019, every television and radio station in America is licensed to a license holder in the public interest, need, and necessity. <laughs> Those are still in effect, I mean, in terms of being on the books. Those are the requirements. And we have got to raise up and raise a little hell uh, about these irresponsible owners of the public airwaves. We're the owners. They're the caretakers, the holders. And We are not. We you know to, what, Scott? We are not yeah. the owners. I, I've said that that's why I've said that Donald Trump could solve the problem with his pen overnight, just reversing the Communications Act, which he has yet to do. It's like voting. Yeah. 
listen, uh, voting in America is like voting for General Motors. I have General Motors stock. Now I vote, you know, uh, uh, on who's going to serve in office uh, as president of General Motors or something, but I have no say as to the design of the car or how many miles it can get on the carburetor or anything like that. Right. That is America. We have no say. Listen, the 1% select, and they leave the 99% to elect. And every one of the choices is the lesser of two evils. Donald Trump got into office because he was not Hillary Clinton. Everybody well, yeah. I know. <laughs> I have a couple of friends who left the country because they were afraid Hillary Clinton was going to become president. And but that's why he got in, uh, and and now what? Look at the, uh, I mean, look at it, what is being offered to us in these democratic debates. I mean, Bernie Sanders has no business being there. He already has proven to us that he is a traitor to the Constitution and his word. You know, I supported Bernie Trump the first time around because he was the only one talking against the the. Uh, imperialistic wars he was he was for better health care for this country he's for reforming the media as you were talking about and especially student loans student loans next to the military budget is the highest debt in america and then he if he had run as a third party candidate we would have been in the house of representatives and we could have had great debates about the issues in america you do not hear issues in America. And, you know, uh, uh, I mentioned, you may remember, when John Kennedy was president, I remember the vitality and the joy that was in the country and in the media. Donald And, and the difference between John Kennedy and Donald Trump. Now, there's a lot of energy and support for Donald, for, for Donald Trump, but it's an angry energy. When John Kennedy was president, it was like a positive energy. And when John well, Kennedy spoke, John Kennedy spoke about the world. He spoke about peace. He spoke about things that were important. He spoke about health. Uh, Donald Trump speaks great, about Donald Trump. So, yeah, yeah great, you know. It's a great point Anyway, Scott. Let I just, just want to thank you today. so much for your interest in the book, and thanks for calling in. Well, thank all you. the listeners to this program definitely get John's two films, the Garrison interviews and the uh, second, the media and the second assassination of John F. Kennedy. They're easily uh, and, and affordably found, and I recommend them. And I haven't started your book, but I'm going to start it the first of the new week. So uh, well, th- uh, thank you so much. You. Uh, Scott, thank what's you. What's the name of his uh, book? What's the name of his uh, book? I'd like you to say. Uh, uh, la- uh, lady, uh, John- TJ, uh, the, my site <laughs> is com. The first Garrison film you can see for nothing. The Garrison files you can see for nothing also. You can find a link to the book to Amazon. And on Amazon, the second film, The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy, is only $2. Uh, so yeah, anybody can afford it. And it's a monster runaway hit. 
Wow, that's awesome. Well, I admire you, John, and, and uh, you know, uh, you're right about uh, uh, optimism and having a sense of can-do in this country. When John Kennedy's brains were left on the street of, streets of Dallas 56 years ago, something died in this country. It ushered in a Pandora's box of madness all through the 60s and into the 70s and, and further on. And we're still suffering from the after effects, the echoes of that act of madness. You're absolutely right, Scott. A a course correction in this country immediately. John. Yes, dear. I want to just ask you, John, I want you to elaborate. You said early on that when JFK died, that was the death of our democracy. And so, you know, I lived through the 60s. And uh, I was raised Republican, but I rebelled, so I was a little hippie chick, right? And I married. Good for you. Um, Good for you. I married. <laughs> I married my husband, uh, Sasha Alexander Lesson, who was a college professor. He's going to turn 80 on his sixth birthday, and he was uh, helping the kids escape and go to Canada, so they didn't That's get drafted against their will. So yeah, I, no, I, 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 I now identify as a Democrat, but what I'm is interested about is the issues. We need to talk about the issues, and, and we're leaving it to the people to talk, but I think every citizen of this planet needs to talk about the issues and how we solve problems on a planetary level, because if we keep uh, pushing out our wage and labors to third worlds, and we create a slave planet. We're creating a slave planet because we no longer have a middle class. Well, let, uh, and so Angel, it's really the uber rich. Okay, mm-hmm. let's get back to the business of your demonstrating. And I'll tell yeah. you, you know, it just occurred to me how the best way that Americans could demonstrate right now. I'm so proud of the fact that you were out on the streets. Now, listen, I was never out on the streets, uh, even though I supported all of that, is because, you know, I was an entertainer and I was questionably in the country and I could, couldn't risk it, but I, right. I, I, I still did it in my act. Uh, but uh, the reason the Vietnam War ended is because people like you voted with your bodies. In 1968, when they had the riots in Chicago and the FBI and the police started bashing people, the riots were started by a CIA agent who pulled down the American flag in Lafayette Park. It's all part of the record. If they create disruption, they can create control. Now, what Mm -hmm. happened is that Lyndon Johnson and McNamara and Nick, whoever, they did not end the Vietnam War. People like you ended it, and the reason people like you were on the street is because there was a draft, and that meant that thousands of middle-class and upper-middle-class white boys were coming home in green plastic body bags. And they didn't know people got to the stage where I don't want my kid to get killed. I don't want to get killed. I'm going to go to Canada or I'm going to go and I'm going to demonstrate. So it was people like you voting with your bodies that did that. Now, the owners of the country are smart. 
they still need to fight these fake wars because they have to steal oil from Syria and from Venezuela and from Iran. They have to plunder the planet. And how do they get soldiers to plunder the planet? Well, if you don't have a draft, what do you do? First of all, you dumb them down. Then, secondly, you get rid of their job opportunities. Uh-oh, here comes Billy Clinton again of the CIA. I'm going to sign NAFTA. And he sends all these jobs out of the country. I know three young men who are honor students at UNLV can't find a job and are going to join the military, and they'll be stunned at how quickly they'll be turned into killers. You saw the last time America demonstrated against a war was Iraq, and it did no good. And I demonstrated in that one, too. Okay, so this is, okay, listen, this is what I suggest. If a a lot of people, you see, we have a meaningless impeachment procedure going against Donald Trump. There is no reason to be impeaching Donald Trump over a phone call you, to the Ukraine. You're missing something. I, 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 you're wonderful. You're missing it. There's a guy, a non uh, us. It's not Republican against Democrat. It's the uber ultra rich against the rest of us. We're all the poor. That, that's, that's right. But okay. 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 I just, just hold it. I just act. said. Yeah. I just yeah. said. Listen to me. I just said it's the 1% who select, and we're left to elect. What I'm saying, we are being distracted now by meaningless impeachment. Clinton should have been impeached over Waco, murdering 87 women and children. Bush should have been impeached over Iraq. Bush Sr. should have been impeached over being a traitor when it came to Iran-Contra. Eisenhower should have been impeached for murdering Mossadegh. A lot of American presidents should have been impeached. There is no impeachable offense that that Donald Trump has committed. It's just that people don't like him. Now, now this is my point. If you don't like Donald Trump and you think that a Democrat, another Democrat, is the lesser of two evils, then do not vote. Do not vote for a lesser evil because one of them is a lesser evil. Now, look at this. Let's say you have 200 million Americans who can vote. And let's say 100,000 of them are the 1%. The country belongs to the 1%. I mean, there's six people in America that own more than 70% of all the wealth in this country. They own more than 100 million people. Stay home. And imagine what it would look like if every voter in America in the 99% refused to go to the polls because they didn't have a real choice. Then what would happen is that you would have a bloodless coup. You would have the 1% all of a sudden saying, oh, my God, this may turn into the French Revolution where they start beheading people because George Bush Sr. said, and it's in the film, If they knew what we were really up to, they'd chase us down the street and hang us. They would voluntarily change the corrupt system in which we live and begin to drain their own swamp. So the question to America is, 
Do you think Americans have the courage to sit on their ass next November 20th, 2020, and do absolutely nothing? Just fiddle with their phones and with their television sets and see what happens. Do, do Americans have the strength not to vote? I don't know. But that's what I would do. I'm not going to vote. I'm going to boycott it. Because I, right now I don't see anybody talking about what you said is the issues. Well, we can start. We don't need to have somebody at the top. The whole thing about presidents is they're just a bunch of kings. Everybody that's rich and all the CEOs, they are the new, um, you know, uh, royal caste class of the world. And so you're voting for one of the royals. They're all related by blood. They're all related to Charlemagne, and they're all the royals. So voting for anybody, but we're not. People are not going to. Not, they're, they're not going to sit at home and do that. This is not going to happen. So we need to do something else, and we need to be smart enough and come up with something else. And talking about the policies at least begins the discussion because right now we're in a, a lose lose situation about whoever gets voted in, unless it's something to do. Uh, something beyond money. It's all about money. The, the war-based economy is perpetual and endless, and it, it just they win no matter no matter who buys the arms. They win no matter where the money gets generated because they earn money regardless of whatever. So we've got to get wise. Oh, I wanted to say that it the cycle ends up eventually with heads coming off. If you watch like uh, Victoria and the Crown, they eventually go and they take off the heads of the royals uh, and or assassinate them like they did Kennedy. Eventually the people will assassinate or we start World War III. Either way, we have uh, well, uh, 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 no, uh, we uh, Listen, love, we won't start World War III. The owners were, but let's get back, Janet, to what uh, mm-hmm. Scott mentioned about the media. Uh, at the beginning okay. of the film, Thomas, okay, yeah, go ahead. Uh, he said, the media is supposed to be publicly owned, and it is not. Right. It is owned corporately because of people like Bill Clinton. The attention should be solely not on the impeachment of Donald Trump, but getting him to reverse the Communications Act and do not allow any corporation to own more than seven television or radio stations. You know the Clear Channel owns 1,500 radio stations. And if you have a serious accident in some small town in the middle of America, you can't even get the news on locally to the people who live in that area because everything's pre-recorded in New York and Los Angeles. Now, at the beginning of the How film... How do we do that? How do we do that? You do that by wow. writing... By writing Congress, by writing your assembly people, uh, your local, you must somehow demand that the Communications Act be reversed. Because Thomas Jefferson said, and it's the beginning of the movie, a function, a democracy cannot function as a democracy unless you have an informed electorate, and you can't have an informed electorate unless you have a free press. And then John right. Kennedy backs that up by saying, any government that is afraid of a fleet free flow of information is a government afraid of its people. He says that at the beginning of the film. It is more important. I mean, shows like yourself are wonderful. 
But imagine how wonderful it would be if you were on national television doing this. You know, when John Kennedy was killed, uh, listen, when John Kennedy was killed, 1,500 different Americans owned television and radio stations. When I was a kid, I heard the worst racist in the world. His name was Father Coughlin, a Catholic priest who had a national hit radio show. He hated Jews. He hated blacks. He wanted them all eliminated. And people listened. And they realized, well, this guy's a kook. And so he eventually disappeared. Evil will eventually disappear, but it can only disappear if folks are informed, if they have choices. Now, on the Internet, now you guys are on the Internet. I look upon the Internet as a box of Cracker Jack. It is full of nuts. It's full of corn. (laughs) But once in a while, you find a prize at the bottom bottom of the basket. (laughs) <laughs> and you guys are a prize, and there are lots of them. Uh, but the, you people should have a national voice and not just an Internet voice. That's, what, here's the, deal. that's the only thing that will change us. Can I, I, wanna, I was going to go, but I'll jump in real quick again. Yeah, from, 70, from 73 until 98, I was in and out of radio in various parts of the country, mostly music, but a little bit of talk over the years. I come from an era that John's talking about. There was a time in this country when one corporate entity could own no more than seven AMs, seven FMs, and seven TVs nationally. That was it. And if you didn't make a crap ton of money uh, owning just those few handful of stations, you were doing it wrong. And the industry thrived. There were plenty of different voices and ideas and news, actual news that related uh, to Scott, the viewer. And, Scott, yeah. uh, Scott, excuse me. Can I add something to that? I'm going to ask this sure. of the lady because I uh, there was a, 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 a local anchor woman here who did not know this. Uh, TJ and Janet, have you heard of the Fairness Doctrine or Equal Time? Yeah. I, I vaguely refresh my memory what that means because it was somewhere back in the past that I heard that. that. There you go. And the reason it was destroyed is because NBC criminally tried to bribe one of Jim Garrison's witnesses, Terry Raymond Russo, and offered him a job for $50,000 in California to get him out of Garrison's jurisdiction. Garrison wired him and then sued NBC for broadcasting it. And they had to give them equal time. And when Garrison went on the air, and you can see the clips in the film, and he said the Central Intelligence Agency murdered our president, the owners of this country said, we can't have this kind of truth on television. And they got rid of the Fairness Doctrine. Now, I'm going to tell you what the Fairness Doctrine was. If you were a a movie maker or an author or a singer or a politician, and somebody attacked you viciously and you felt you could get equal time, you could get it. I am the, I was the first person in America to review movies on television and in the news. I am the only one who was challenged in the fairness doctrine and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. Now that's how powerful it was and this is the instance that created it. 
Did you ever see a movie called Soylent Green? Yeah, yes, I did. <laughs> I eat people. Okay, okay, Charlton Heston, where they reduced people down to crackers, so people yeah. were eating yeah. three, three squares a day. Okay, it was an absolutely dreadful, dreadful movie. Well, of Quite course, when you're, uh, yeah, when when you're uh, Charlton Heston, when you're, and Charlton came on my show a couple of times, but in any event. When you're hammering something, it's easier to get laughs. And I was decimating the film because it was caught awful. And I'm on the air, 6 o'clock news with Tom Snyder. And I begin to feel sorry for the fact that I'm crucifying this film. And I sort of stop myself. And I say, you know, folks, people don't really make a bad movie on purpose. There are a lot of talented, talented people involved in the making of any film, good or bad. Sometimes they turn out great, which is seldom, and mostly they turn out bad. But I should say something good about this film. And I paused and I said, the sets are beautiful. And then I was ashamed of myself for sort of lying. So then I said, so then I said, the sets would have been more beautiful if they'd been placed in front of Charlton Heston. Well, there was everybody applauded in the in the in the newsroom, my God. And it was picked up by magazines all around the country. The producer at twentieth century Fox sued. He called Ooh. Bob Howard, the general manager of the station, and said either you fire Barber or no more ads from twentieth century Fox. And Bob Howard uh, <laughs> let me keep my let me keep my job. And declined to give him equal time. So he went to the courts in Los Angeles. And they declined to give him equal time. He took him, they took it to the Supreme Court in California. And they declined to give him equal time. Five years later, the Supreme Court ruled on his request for equal time. And they turned him down. And the reason they turned him down was, and it's in the record, John Barber's reviews are of no public importance. Wow. So there you go. Well, what, now, that was thing, the fairness doctrine at work. Right. One good thing well, about that movie was Edward G. Robinson's final appearance. So we got to see Edward well, G. Robinson one last time. I may have for Eddie. Uh, yeah. That that that. Anyway, that's John, it. you're but a anyway. to listen to, and I'm going to go now for real. But thank you uh, uh, for for <laughs> yeah, having for John on, on and for for taking my call. I've got to get in touch with you off the air, John. We've got a deal that we've got to do. But anyway, I'll let you go. And thanks again for everything. Uh, hey, thanks for calling, Scott. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. I have one more question. I have one more question before we get too far. And we got about 15 minutes left. You never Why did Clinton sign that act? Oh, well, okay. That's Let me okay. Go ahead. Because I'm going to forget. <laughs> Why did Clinton sign that act? What, have you ever investigated? Was, was there some kind of payoff for him for doing that? Because, there, uh, you know, we know that our presidents are puppets anyway. There's somebody above <laughs> that calling the shots. We All the presidents are puppets. <laughs> Why did Clinton money. sign why did Clinton sign that act, as, uh, you know, making it so people could buy and monopolize? The, the, well, the we could only, Angel, Angel, we could only speculate on that. But look right. at all of the polit- 
Look at all the politicians, local politicians, get into office and they get a modest salary to start with, and they all come out multimillionaires. And right. the Clintons are no exception to that. Okay, yeah. now, who, listen, the people that own this country got to own it because they're smart. They are not stupid. And they have hired the greatest psychologists in the world to learn how to control masses and masses of people. And they are the shepherds and we are the the sheep. So you know, I am not people. Yeah, I am not interested in who got Bill Clinton to do that because to me and and you know I'm I have every, I got all kinds of people. I know more about the Robert Kennedy assassination than anyone. And uh, uh I I don't get involved with that or Martin Luther King or 911 or anything like that because every disaster in America, every murder in America all began begins and ends with the murder of John Kennedy. And it's a cold case at the Justice Department. And if you open that, as it should be open, it will unravel all the corruption in this country. But what will happen, it's not just a few, a few dozen people that would be destroyed. It's literally the entire system. It wouldn't be right. everybody in media that would be out of work and in jail. It would be bankers. It would be congressmen. It would be senators. You have no idea how many CIA agents are in Congress and in the Senate. You have no idea. Because we have now fake terrorists. I mean, when, when there was a real war or semi-real war in Vietnam, we had yellow people to attack. And now we ha- in Iraq... We had uh, Muslims to attack, but we had a country to attack. How many more countries can we attack? We've attacked almost everything. You know what? <laughs> it's not Russia destroying America. It's not China destroying America. It's American politicians and CEOs destroying America. So what do they do? They invent fake terrorists. Anybody in the United States now could be deemed a terrorist. Anybody. Right. From Donald Trump to you and I, just well, for the way we're talking. Foreign relations. Do you? Uh, yeah, that was one of the comments uh, in the peanut gallery what's your, that I. What's your question? Run. Start over because you broke off. As per, what was? Start from the beginning because I didn't hear your first part. Um, Begin your question again. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Can you hear me, Janet? Now I can. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Say okay. your question because anyway, you broke up. John. John, have you heard of the Council of Foreign Relations and how they yes, are, Is that yes. one of the main uh, – do you think that is one of the main – I thought they had to go before them to even be considered to be a president of the United States. Do you know anything about that? Well, certainly they are, they, most of them remember the Council of Foreign Relations, and I know that a lot of people are very supportive of Tulsi Gabbard because Tulsi Gabbard – is the only one who seems to be opposed to all these fake wars. And Tulsi Gabbard said three months ago, the first thing I'm going to do as president of the United States is drop all charges against Julian Assange and let Ed Snowden return to the United States. Otherwise, what good is the First Amendment and free speech? Now, a lot of people applaud that, but then those who don't like her say, well, she belongs to the Council of Foreign Relations. I'll tell you, more people 
have to go before APAC to become president. Nobody has become president of this country since John Kennedy without going before APAC, which is the American Israeli Political Action Committee. And John Kennedy tried to get them registered as a foreign lobby, which indeed they are, and they're allowed to be a foreign lobby. Anybody could have a foreign lobby as long as they're registered. And he tried to get them into court, and of course he died and nobody else pursued it. And there's something else that John Kennedy did. John Kennedy was challenging the Federal Reserve. Oh, yeah. John Kennedy signed a, an executive order. The executive order was 11110. It called, as mandated by uh, the Constitution, the Treasury, to print silver notes. And I have some of them. It, when John Kennedy was killed, if you borrowed money from the Federal Reserve, it was 21% interest. But if you borrowed these silver notes from our own government, the interest was one-half percent. How wow. long do you think the Federal Reserve would have been in business as Kennedy lived? He was shot at 1 o'clock, and at 1.15, the presses stopped. Now, Executive Order 111 is still in existence, but nobody has had the balls to print the money again. That was regarding 10289. In uh, 1951, right? The executive order amended that order, 10289. No, so, no, no, no. No, no, no. It was executive order 11110. Just look right. it up. Yeah. The executive order amended that executive order, 10289. Executive order 1110. So you're right about that. And that was some concern. And some people say that's why. It wasn't really the Bay of Pigs. It was over the Treasury, the world, well, Secretary of the Treasury. In, indeed, TJ, off. a lot of people say that, but they it's like Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson probably knew about it. He was not one of the planners. He was the be main beneficiary of it, okay, as was yeah. the Federal Reserve. But only the United States – listen, a lot of people think that Mossad had something to do with it, Israelis, because John Kennedy – wanted investigations of their nuclear reactors in Israel. And, and, of course, he was turned down by that. And so we've never been able to investigate their nuclear reactors. And when a, an Israeli scientist 20 years ago went public with how many they had, they imprisoned him. I mean, the, the Israelis imprisoned an Israeli scientist were revealing, revealing the truth. And, 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 and so... It, the problems still exist, and everything depends on information. We need to be informed. And you people are doing it on a shows like this on a very, very small level, but it has yeah. to be caught, carried to a higher level. And we have to convince, let's say, we have to convince people like, let's say, Jesse Ventura or Oliver Stone or some very prominent people to push harder to get us a freer press. Look at Jesse Belder? Ventura. <laughs> Jesse Ventura is on Russian television. He should be on American television, for crying out loud. Yeah, I don't know what happened there. He went south on that. But uh, is this your friend, Richard Belzer? Uh, he was in radio. I, 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 I know, I, yeah, I know, Richard, uh, I know Richard very well. He lives in France. He's a very, very nice fellow. You like him. Okay. He's about your age then, right? 
Yes. He was born in 44. All right. Well, what do you think of uh, you guys getting together and helping us some, at some event with the X-Files or something? Because Jim no, no, uh, Rich, <laughs> Richard wrote a book called The Hit List, and what it is, he just talks about the number of people who were shot who were important witnesses to the assassination. But much better material comes from uh, Penn Jones, who wrote a series of books called Pardon My Grief, and then even better information comes back. Uh, the lady that I told you about, her name is May Brussel, M-A-E-B-R-U-S-S-E-L-L. And as a matter of fact, what you should do one night, uh, and I wish I'd thought of this earlier, you could have played tonight on on the anniversary of uh, John Kennedy's murder, the speech that a lot of people thought got him murdered, and that's his speech about secret societies. But you could, one night, you you should Google May Brussel, Pick out 10 minutes of something that you love that you sing and just play it. You know, the Internet is filled with people like Gorby Dahl and all kinds of fabulous people, comedians, Bill Hicks. You can find four or five minutes of 10 minutes of great information and just play it for your audience. If it's not copyrighted. But listen. No, it's not copyrighted. What? It's not copyrighted. You've got to go do Jeff Rince's show. And, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. How did you? yeah. Okay, love. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. I would love to have you back. We'd love to have you back, and I'd love to have you on with my husband, Dr. Sasha. So I'll be sending you an email, okay? And I we didn't address the extraterrestrial question. We have to cover that. What did JFK know about the ETs? But we'll let you run. Um Thank okay, you so love, much you guys, for coming on that, today. Okay, uh, uh, my pleasure again. It's www.johnbarbersworld.com, B-A-R-B-O-U-R-S, and you'll find a lot of fabulous stuff. And thank you again, ladies, for having me on. You have a great evening, and I'll talk to you sometime around the new year. Okay. Excellent. Great. Love we'll to be you. booking you for 2020 then. Look forward to it, John. Excellent show. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Aloha. Uh, he's got to run go do Jeff Rince's show. So, friends, okay, he's, so. he's a good friend on Facebook, and uh, he's very well-known, folks. So I hope you enjoyed that. And you can reach him, John Barber on Facebook and right here at TJ Marcy Radio, and I'm sure Janet will – Post this on Aquarian Radio, and we will book him after the first of the year. So he's a pretty busy guy. We were really lucky to get him. And uh, Janet, uh, anything you want to say? We've only got a minute left. I just want to say you. I, I know. I just wanted to say I put a lot of the uh, links to the information that John was talking about on AquarianRadio.com, and TJ will be copying some for her website. And uh, thank you for joining us tonight, and we will have. Uh, John Barber back another time and explore more of the, this information. It was fascinating. So, um, all right. So that's it. Uh, we're, I guess we're out of time. So thank you very much for joining us. And we'll be back again on Sunday uh, on the Sacred Matrix on Revolution.Radio, Tuesday on Stargate to the Cosmos on Revelation.Radio, and next Thursday again we have Dr. Rick Miller on Stargate oh, good. Portal, Portal Stargate, Portal, Portal Stargate. Portal. 
Yeah. <laughs> I did it reverse too. Um, all of these are Revolution Radio. And then Fridays right. we do, uh, what is that, Allied Command. And then I don't know what TJ has other days, but we're broadcasting as much as we can to help bring about the evolution of consciousness. So Conscious thank awareness. you for joining Information. us. Information disclosure. Yes. And don't forget about Bob Brown and the Laughlin Megacon. What is it? Laughlin UFO, UFO Megacon. UFO Megacon in February of 2020, and um, yeah, I'll have to get the link. Okay. Here at ACO Radio, American Communications Online, or any affiliated stations or websites are not responsible for what guests, hosts, or call-ins may say. All programming is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only.